0: Welcome to the African American Studies Channel on the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very happy to be speaking with Dr. Andy Hines today about his new book, Outside Literary Studies: Black Criticism. Black Criticism and the University. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Hines. Thank you. So Your story, your book largely tells the story of African-American writers and critics um, and their challenges to a mid-century formalist literary critical school known as New Criticism. And so I wanted us to start just by you kind of telling us a bit about New Criticism, about its institutional situatedness, and also why it might have been incompatible um, with at least, you know, some black writers and sort of some black texts and aspects of black social life.
1: That's a wonderful way to get into the book. And in fact, is in some respects how I got into this project in the first place. So I appreciate you starting there. I think the the way that the New Criticism is most well known to us is that they've brought close reading as the kind of methodological um, practice of choice for literary studies within the academy. Um, and this institutionalization began largely in the mid 20th century in the 40s and 50s, though in the narrative of the book, I I complicate the story a little bit that um, the new criticism wasn't quite as coherent of an entity until in some ways, many of its practitioners began to disavow it for uh, politically complicated reasons. But the, the story that I tell about the origins of the new criticism really is rooted in a group of uh, thinkers in the South called the agrarians, um, Robert Penn Warren, John Crowe Ransom, Alan Tate being among the most, the most um, prominent of them. And when we look back to their work in the 30s, you know, mergi- merging out of the things that they did as, as the fugitive group at, at Vanderbilt, um, we find that they write this uh, polemic of sorts called I'll Take My Stand. Uh, which is a book that calls for a return to the agrarian economy from uh, industrialism. And one of the things that's particularly striking about this book is precisely the absence of, of black people and black life from this book in which they're trying to reconcile the, the, a path forward for the South. And a, and a return to agrarianism uh, with the uh, making invisible of black people obviously raises some really important questions. There's one essay in the book by Robert Penn Warren uh, called The Briar Patch that Um, really embraces a Booker T. Washington approach towards kind of the industrial uplift of black people. But however, um, Warren is very explicit about the role that black people uh, should continue to play in society, that this is not really a path for uplift, but rather a path for continued labor. Um, And so the book, I'll Take My Stand, you know, reveals that there is a sort of political economic project to this agrarian tendency. And it's explicitly so. And I think, one of the things that's not remembered about this group, like John Crowe Ransom, for instance, uh, you know, he wrote a, a sort of political economic treatise called Land in the years after this. Um, so w- one of the things that it reveals, and we look that back to that as an origin for the new criticism, is that we see that this critical program actually uh, has a kind of political economic project behind it. And so one of the things that I'm trying to kind of uh, reveal in the book is that this political economic project, which many of these uh, literary critics began to disavow in various ways in the mid century, actually underpins um, less their in in some ways aspects of their methodological approaches, but that more significantly, they represent a way that um, critical practice is in relation to the state and the university and to capital. So, a really important aspect of the agrarian story that often gets forgotten, or at least gets emphasized less is that I'll Take My Stand, the original title for the book, was Tracks Against Communism. And so there's a clear thread that one of the fears about industrialization is that it brings together um, black workers, white workers, uh, and also gives additional power to the state. And so the agrarians have a simultaneous fear of a kind of uh, multiracial worker uprising and also a powerful state entity that wants to suppress that. And so when we think about the ways that that might position or, or complicate uh, the work of black writers uh, trying to enter into a conversation with the definition of literature that is so dominant uh, as the new critics establish it, is that it, it, the thought and the institutional practice which is tied to it uh, explicitly positions black writers as external to the kind of order, the political economic order, Um, That the New Critics seek to create, both within the university, but in their wider relations with the kind of racial liberal state, uh, it it pushes them to the outside. Hence, beginning some of the, the, you know, beginning to kind of invoke aspects of the of the of the, um, of the book's title. So, I think, I mean, I think the important thing to know, and I think the things that I would want readers to walk away with this is to, to recognize the new criticism certainly as something that we remember as a methodological intervention into what literary critical practice is. But maybe the more important way to think about it is that they didn't invent close reading, right? The new critics sort of are... are um, crucial towards establishing a set of institutional practices and a set of relations between English departments, the wider universities of which they are part, and the state capital nexus that they are connected to. And that we that that's a place of intervention where we, uh, the book really encourages us to think, and it opens up space to see um, a widespread set of practices of black resistance uh, and black challenges to that kind of institutional formation that new critics establish.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And I I like how you answer that question. It's sort of layered and characteristic of how you advance arguments in the book, which I really appreciated. Um, I guess my my first question, you know, following that would be whether or not you could say more about how sort of what looks like uh, a sort of methodology of literary interpretation is actually a wholesale ideological um, apparatus that connects what would seem to be disparate parts of society that are in various, various stages of transformation. Um, I wonder if you could just say a bit more about that, because as you've just sketched, I know there might be some listeners who are like, okay, so they wrote some literary criticism, and then, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right.
0: Yeah, so I wonder well, if you I could think, just say a little bit more.
1: Well, I think, I think one of the things that it's important one of the things that one of the ways I answered this question in the book is that the black writers who were being actively excluded from literary critical spaces in the university um, drew the same set of connections. And so, in some ways, um, the history I offered is certainly one that I flesh out some in the book, but it's one that I'm uh, pursuing that black writers in the mid-century kind of also articulated, uh, particularly black writers on the left. And you know, one of the things that they recognize is precisely the ways that the new critics become uh, entangled within the U.S. state at this particular moment. And so I think that this is a place where um, the narrative of the book really intersects with the history of the university, um, which is to say that, you know, this, the, the, the mid-century moment is obviously remembered as a crucial one for the expansion of, of the massive expansion with the number of students due to the GI Bill, um, you know, later in the later 50s, the National Defense Education Act, which kind of extend, extended those protections to more students. And so, in that sense, the new criticism uh, in certain uh, quarters is remembered as a kind of a mass democratic um, movement. There were more students entering into the academy, therefore, um, close reading, which departed from uh, philological and more explicitly kind of biographical or literary historical methods of teaching made it so, or at least a, the, the kind of history goes, made it so that students with with a, who did not have familiarity in those subjects could easily access and read and interpret literature. Um, and I think one of the things that's important to point out was that this method that is about kind of resolving uh, a series of tensions within a poem into a kind of unified reading and seeing the complicated dimensions of that um, resonates very deeply with the kind of e pluribus unum of the United States, the kind of melting pot philosophy that there's this tension that's kind of being drafted into sort of one identity, which is a, which is something that the New Critics themselves talk about. There's this moment in the book where I th- talk about how John Crow Ransom thinks about a, how a poem is very much like a d- democracy, um, which which becomes a sort of important ideal. But when we look historically, you know, and I think that this is a kind of point that is moved quickly over in uh, Gerald Graff's history of the profession, but that new critical methods were much more successful at more elite institutions than they were at the mass institutions like um, CUNY schools or, uh, you know, pu- wider public education systems, that the students, students at those institutions had more trouble with the kind of um, abstraction of close reading. And so that, in fact, that this method that was meant to be democratic and that largely had the kind of support from uh, state forces who were seeking to create and generate a kind of uh, general education curriculum for a sort of mass public, which we have to remember is largely white, despite uh, the large increase of people entering into universities, that there's still, this is still very, very much informed by segregation, still very much informed by the limitations of GI Bill benefits at this period. That, that this methodology only reaches a certain set of people nevertheless. And so that um, one of the reasons that literary criticism is so important in this moment is precisely because it takes on it enters into and intersects with a kind of political economic function of the state that's wanting to absorb a lot of soldiers who are coming back from, from World War II who may not have jobs. It's a very complicated economic moment. It's a very radical political, radical um, moment for workers. I think that that's something that's not often remembered about the post-war, post-war moment. And so I think that it's it's kind of meant to, to, to marshal some of those forces uh, into the academy, and so that the, one of the reasons why literary criticism is so important is because it kind of shapes the ways that we think about the humanities and even certain social sciences in this mid-century point. And so it kind of becomes to be, and whether this is fair or not, I think is is up for debate. And you know, it's it's interesting conversation to have. But it, it you know, literary studies in the mid-century becomes to be a sort of um, you know metonym for the university more broadly, right? And I think, and I think the other the other thing too is that. I also touch on this briefly in the book, but that you know, new critical methods, and I think people like uh, William Maxwell have talked about this some degree, you know, become kind of incorporated into um, the state security apparatus so that, that there's this is not just a kind of analogy that actually these methods themselves become ways that the FBI and the CIA are reading uh, black writers and black literature and so become a force a force of control. And so I think, you know the the book highlights how quickly a sort of literary critical method at a certain historical point can take on wide scale ramifications within the state, and in that sense, it, it's a, a crucial dimension towards reproducing aspects of um, not only anti black racism but forms of anti communism, and also really invested in reproducing aspects of American imperialism uh, beyond the United States as well.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think. You know, my first question following that would be, you know, the Southern agrarians that you name, sort of given all of that you've laid out, right, and how this sort of new sort of methodology um, sort of infiltrates various parts of society, I'm, I'm curious about whether or not you, you see the, the folks you name as the sort of Southern agrarians as this sort of being an intentional political project, or is this something that's unfolding you know, as a result of the con- a confluence of a bunch of the things you just named, right? Um, of the sort of burgeoning student population within the university, um, sort of, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. I'm just I mean, curious no. Stuff. Well, I think Is this
0: I, intentional political.
1: Well, I think I think it's it's multi form, right? On the one hand, you have Donald Davidson, who's an agrarian writing, I think, in the American Review, which was a sort of right wing. Um, right-wing political magazine that also did a lot of cultural work, uh, in the thirties, you have him writing that, um, generating a a literary critical methodology and anthology textbook is an important way to kind of establish a sort of cultural dominance. And the way to do that is through the university. You have him writing this in the thirties before, um, Clance Brooks and Robert Penn Warren generate their really important textbook called Understanding Poetry, uh, which, which, you know, you know, then and now is remembered as maybe perhaps the most pivotal um, poetry textbook tip for the development of literary studies, you know, which went into four editions so that there's in some senses, there's there's really explicit links between those things. But I think at the same time, I think the the agrarian project wouldn't have gotten off the ground if it wasn't tied to other sort of political and economic developments. And I think one of the interesting kind of intersections is that, um, you know, the agrarians had a sort of political and economic influence beyond literary studies. You know, this is in some ways an atmospheric connection. But, you know, James Buchanan, the Virginia School Economist, uh, you know, Melinda Cooper has done um, some really important work on on. On him, as has Nancy McLean in her book *Democracy in Chains*, and you know, Buchanan was was deeply influenced by um, some of, or at least was was inspired in part, to sort of developing this kind of uh, you know version that would eventually pair you know uh, conservative and kind of neoliberal um, philosophies, obviously later later on. Uh, in part through his contact with figures like Donald Davidson uh, at Vanderbilt, or at least you know being aware of and being influenced by these figures when when he was uh, in Tennessee, and so I think that one of the things that. I hope to, to the, that the book kind of touches on a little bit is that this is part of a sort of broader movement that feels quite familiar in this moment. The the kind of uh, dialectic of anti-communism and racism is one that very much shapes our present. Uh, and obviously, there are people who are telling that stories through political and economic thought more explicitly. But I think what we see is that literary studies is also kind of involved with that sh- that shift. And I think one of the things that I would add to this also is that, you know, one of the things that happens in the mid-century, and then this is, I think, distinct from our own moment, right, is that the, that Ransom, Tate, Warren, who become really important national figures, many of them are among the first of, um, you know, what would eventually be referred to as the poet laureate of the United States. They were all very much affiliated with the Library of Congress. They give out this uh, public award uh, to Ezra Pound, who at the time is, is uh, uh, you know, accused of treason and which becomes a very controversial moment for the new criticism that I document in the book. Um, but that, you know, they recognize that part of their success and their, uh, challenge against communism, racism, or or, excuse me, communism, and their, their uh, embrace of racism must be channeled through a kind of state form of liberalism, there's a becomes to be a kind of consensus around this. And that that, you know, modulates the ways the discourse that they use to describe some of these things. And it also kind of drives their turn towards, you know, cultural uh, production or, or assessing cultural production and away from their discussion of the kind of explicit politics that, that many of them carry. And I think that that in turn kind of shapes the ways that we've thought about the history of literary studies as being one that's largely largely shaped by methodological developments rather than entangled with these kind of broader political and economic shifts that, uh, as your question kind of initially indicated, um... The book seeks to kind of connect or at least draw a sort of complicated web of, um, Contingency uh, and cause that that uh, the new critics and their method are very much involved in and that brings uh, the black writers who seek to challenge challenge it uh, into a wider sort of conversation that addresses not only, you know, the method of how literature is defined or how we read literature, but but is engages therefore how how that method is connected to um, the aims of capital the aims of the state, the aims of the university. And so I think that 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 provides, you know, one trajectory for thinking about the broader relation of new criticism to kind of political and economic developments within the US and the world at this particular time.
0: Yeah, so I'm curious about, um, I'm curious about whether, you know, sort of given what you've outlined, whether the sort of implicit racialization of new criticism, it's implicit elitism, um, it's sort of methods that uh, are carrying out, as you say, the sort of work of capital and the work of the state. I'm curious if there were sort of challenges to new criticism that issued from sort of other domains, you know, so other than sort of black writers, sort of black literary criticism. And if there were, do those sort of other critics of new criticism are they saying many of the same things that sort of black writers and black critics are saying about new criticism?
1: That's a great question. And I think it's a complicated one in large part because um, the, one of the arguments in the book is that the new critics and their institutionalization was so forceful that they shape, you know, uh, our understanding of literary critical history to a really intense degree. My brief answer to that would be yes. There were people who were making um, left critiques of of the New Criticism. Um, many of them were also affiliated with the Communist Party, and many of them even were f- f- affiliated with the Jefferson School of Social Science, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. Of which uh, there were a lot of Black writers affiliated, and that was a really you know it was it was many things, but among them was a hub for Black left cultural thought. Um, but there were people like. Um, yeah, Martha Millett, who, uh, was a, uh, a poet and a critic there and, uh, Sarah Ehlers and her book left of poetry kind of details the ways that she, uh, you know, is making this kind of long argument about, uh, new critics and, uh, the ways that they're invested in turning the poem, uh, into a commodity fetish, which of course is like, or, or turning it into a commodity and thinking about it in terms of commodity fetishism, which, um, was something I was reading as I was finishing the book, uh, which is, you know, mirrors an argument that I make. And so that there's an interesting connection there. Um, And I think that there is, you know, there's a lot of folks who are, you know, actively thinking about the kind of ways that um, non-academic critics, critics who are working in these kind of political spaces, were working outside of the kind of main ambit of of the university uh, and sort of uh, proto-feminist spaces and others were making these kinds of critiques of, of the new criticism. But I think and so there's that piece. But another piece is that, you know, a lot of the times that this divide gets broken up is that some people will say, oh, well, there's, you know, there's the agrarian new critics like, like Ransom, Tate, and Warren. And then there's the sort of New York intellectuals, which are, you know, m- represented, you know, maybe more so by a figure like Lionel Trilling or something like that. And there are certainly, you know, minor methodological uh, and, you know, philosophical debates that are going on between those groups, which is one of the things that divides up those schools. But ultimately, you know, I would sort of argue that they come to a kind of consensus position around a certain liberalism. And I think that that, um, necessarily means that the agrarians certainly concede certain aspects of their political program to kind of agree with a sort of more center left, uh, positioning. Uh, by some of those critics, but that it, it otherwise pushes out sort of more significant dissent uh, away from this kind of mid-century, you know, away from our, our narrative and remembering of this mid-century moment. And so I think that that's another dimension, too, is that it kind of makes that all critical, literary critical debate in this mid-century moment, at least in a strong, and at least in the way that it's most typically remembered, is about a kind of um, somewhat, you know, interne- internecine battle. Around the kind of definition of liberalism and its relationship to literary criticism, which I think is an interesting conversation, but I think it, 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 it it suppresses a sort of wider, um, political challenge that a lot of, that there, that was going on in this particular moment with the particularly motivated and animated, though besieged, uh, left in the United States that, that had, um, new and interesting imaginaries for uh, the position of uh, black people, workers, feminist thought uh, together at this particular moment in a way that is, you know, quite familiar to the ways that we think now, but that was, that was very difficult to kind of recover in part because of the strong force of the institutionalized practice of this kind of debate this debate around liberalism that uh, be- became the kind of consensus position in the mid 20th century.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, where I wanted to go is I wanted to ask you about whether or not, you know, there were like black new critics. And I wanted to ask that question because I was really interested in the anecdote um, that ends your second chapter where Robert Hayden says something like, you know, I don't want to be called a black poet. Um, And Melvin Tolson is like, oh, that's ridiculous. And so, but I think given how you just answered this question, if I'm hearing you correctly, that 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 why it's kind of difficult to talk about this sort of formation that you are analyzing is that it is a methodology but it's also a kind of ideological way of sort of viewing the world of upholding certain kinds of understandings in order to produce to produce and also sort of make impossible certain social realities and possibilities for all these emergent populations um, mid-century during a time of transformation. And so it seems to me like you might say that, yeah, maybe there were Black new critics, but it doesn't really matter, right? Because this sort of, that kind of methodological concern is not really how new criticism is operating sort of beyond the academy to do certain kinds of ideological work. So is that is that what you would say? That like, sure, there were debates about how to sort of read literature and sure there are Black folks who could sort of be invested in sort of formalist methods. But at the end of the day, the work that New Criticism is doing sort of beyond literary culture and criticism itself is of such a sort of different and more slippery valence that to talk about it that way is to like miss the point.
1: I think... I agree in part. I mean, I think there there are, I mean, you know, the book chronicles very briefly in its third chapter on and Hughes, uh, Hughes and Arna Bontomps' kind of back and forth about uh, Richard Gibson and James Baldwin's inclusion in an issue of Perspectives USA. Um, the, the Gibson essay is called A Note to Nothing, which happened to also be the first, uh, essay or one of the first essays published by a black writer in the Kenyan review, which was a sort of very dominant new critical venue. Uh, Gibson, I believe had a fellowship at Kenyan. So it was with Ransom um, uh, at the time. And then the essay in question that's being published, republished uh, for the third time, actually in Perspectives USA is of course, uh, Baldwin's everybody's protest novel. And what, Hughes and Bontemps are talking about is that they kind of can't believe that Baldwin and Gibson are um knowingly or not throwing their hat into a kind of throwing their hat uh into the ring with the new critics and the New York intellectuals. They kind of see them as uh perhaps just not knowing the history of these particular thinkers and explicitly kind of invoke it. Um, and, you know, despite uh, admiring Baldwin's writing uh, to a, a, an intense degree, uh, Hughes and Bontemps are just quite surprised that he's willing to kind of be republished in this particular venue. You know, after this essay is published, you um, Hughes reads a novel by Baldwin and is kind of writes writes to him and says, "You know, I'm, I'm kind of surprised at the at, at the at what you're writing about in this novel as it, with regard to to race and your position on it. Based on like, I'm surprised at this based on what you had previously written in everybody's protest novel, and I think that this you know this lines up with." Uh, you know, Lawrence Jackson kind of does a reading of everybody's protest novel and the Indignant Generation that aligns aspects of it with New Critical thought, and so this is not to say that Black writers couldn't be invested in these kind of conversations, and some of them were. I think the, the question becomes, um, you know, to the question becomes, for me at least, is that how does that push out other forms of uh, Black political? And uh, cultural engagement, whether it's with directly with new criticism or otherwise. And I think, you know, the mid-century is a great place to think about this in large part because for so long, our understanding of it was shaped by um, Wright, Baldwin and Ellison, you know, two of which were kind of uh, you know, disavowed communism after, you know, various uh, engagements with it. And Baldwin, of course, earlier, you know, Baldwin becoming in some some degrees, you know, increasingly radical, uh, you know, recognizing in some part, though, not not disavowing necessarily, but recognizing a a more complex relationship to liberalism as, as his career proceeds. Right. And so I think that it highlights that there is a kind of world apart from those modes of engagement with this type of critical thought. and there's also with the, there's worlds apart from the types of engagement with communism uh, in that in that part by mid-century black writers. And one of the things that my book seeks to open up is that there were a large number of of black writers. Um, who were engaged explicitly in leftist thought and were, whether you know, openly communist or not, uh, had you know, deep ties to uh, activities of the Communist Party uh, at a moment when you know the Communist Party had, say, elevated Claudia Jones uh, to a policymaking position uh, when it came to the women question in the U.S. And so that there um, is a sort of more complex landscape that uh, you know, I would argue that the that a focus on you know, exclusive focus on black writers who were engaging with new criticism and a kind of in the same venues as them and explicitly kind of encountering them, um, kind of covers over this wider political landscape that's important to recognize in part because there were um, alternative, you know, literal alternative institutions being formed, but also other ways of thinking about not just literary interpretation in in general that like Cared about materialist concerns, but that also thought about a kind of materialist form of formalism. That know that it's not like just, um, it's not like one group is interested in reading the text and the other group is just like, let's look at the political world around it as a way of shaping it. That, um, you know, in the book, I talk about Melvin Tolson, who's very invested in a certain form. Uh, of formalism in the kind of uh, literary critical practice that he uh, implies in his tête-à-tête uh, tete with uh, Alan Tate around uh, Tolson's poem, the libretto for the Republic of Liberia. So I think that, like, that's also a way to think about it: that it that even a term like formalism um, isn't exclusively available to um, academic, or you know. Um, isn't exclusively available to academic definition, but also isn't exclusively available to the definition of these other kind of um, middle magazines like the Kenyan Review, Partisan Review, etc., that were operating in this mid-20th century that had such a crucial role to play in the definition of literary critical practice.
0: Yeah, I mean, the reason why I asked the question, and we're going to sort of transition to talking about Melvin Tolson, but is that I'm, I'm curious, I mean, so far we've been hearing somewhat of a, of a kind of right-left story. And so I'm just curious, are there, are there challenges to new criticism that don't issue from the left? And if there are, is the character of those challenges sort of drastically different than the ones that do? Are all the challenges sort of given how new criticism operates in that sort of mid-century moment, do they all carry with them sort of political input Or are there moments where we can see that is not the case? I mean, I think for me, my interest is sort of figuring out why new criticism especially seems to be so adept at adjudicating what are certain contradictions in liberalism during this sort of... um, period of time but also about how all these sort of different practitioners who do have different politics i mean sort of as you just noted even between the agrarians and someone like the the New York intellectuals how it is they do come to understand themselves as as being you know a part of a project that's nevertheless does advance a set of principles that have a loosely unified set of consequences institutionally politically and even culturally and so that's that's where the questions are coming from so i'll just i'll leave that in the air because i do want to sort of pivot to thinking about tolson and i think it's related um but your second chapter is called Melvin B. Tolson's Belated Bomb. And there you're sort of, as you already alluded to, you're investigating sort of Tolson's solicitation of Alan Tate uh, for preface to his work, to Tolson's work, Libretto for the Republic of Liberia. And so maybe we could start by, by thinking just, you know, why did Tolson solicit Tate? What was that about?
1: Well, m- my argument is that Tolson writes to Tate Because he is invested in getting, he wants to start a kind of debate about the terms of new critical formalism. Um, And Tate largely takes him up on this. Um, And Tate uh, writes a preface to his book, or preface to this this, um, work of poetry. Tolson had been named uh, the Poet Laureate of Liberia, despite the fact that he had never been to Liberia before. um, Which is a, a whole other dimension that we can sort of talk about. But that he asked Tate to write this preface. uh, Tate uh, responds and says, "You know, Tolson is kind of is the first uh, black poet to kind of achieve the the greatness of modern poetry." And this is a really interesting line, in part because. Tolson more or less writes to Tate in a letter, this line himself, he says, I kind of initiated this, 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 this moment, this turn to a sort of modernist style in black poetry, which Tate kind of repeats. But later, in, you know, the Dudley Randall relays a story that Tolson had had told him, which was that Tolson tells Randall that he initially wrote to Tate with a draft of the poem, and Tate said, I won't, Write this. And then Tolson claims that he revised the whole poem. And uh after revising it, Tate said, like, wow, like you actually have done it. Like now I'm gonna write the preface for it, which sort of implies that Tate would only kind of accept the poem in a certain style. Um Tolson's biographer, Robert Farnsworth suggest like shows quite clearly that this is a myth. He like has the initial like letter uh, that that Tolson wrote to Tate and and that Tate wrote back and Tate like never turned him down. He may have like not answered very quickly or something like that, but um, there's not uh, a, a clear rejection. And so it seems clear that when Tolson received Tate's preface, Tolson. Uh, was excited, but also in, in kind of continuing his correspondence with Tate, realized that for Tate, suggesting that Tolson had finally kind of arrived at the, the criteria of modern poetry um, was, not, and it was not the kind of achievement that Tolson was, was imagining that it had been. And so Tolson embarks on writing um, an essay, uh, you know, w- about his correspondence with Tate that he hopes to publish, that he hoped to publish in the Suwannee Review. Uh, which was at the time, more or less, Tate had been editing, had just wrapped up a stint editing there. And this essay is a a, a remarkable document for its attempt to kind of critique the new criticism on multiple fronts. Uh, It's to catch Tate in his own contradictions about what establishes the achievements of modern poetry and thinking about the ways that Tate um, is reading, uh, does a kind of... uh, uh, a reading of his own poem, Ode to the Confederate Dead, at the same time as it's about Tolson addressing um, this kind of weird instance that, uh, that, that Tate comments on in their correspondence. And the, the, the story that Tate comments on is Tolson says, you know, I uh, was relayed this story of, of, an, of, a, of, a, of an older Black person in Detroit at a library in Cadillac Square reading your poem, Ode to the Confederate Dead. And Tate writes back and says something to the effect of, you know, I told a sociologist friend about this anecdote and they, you know, they said something about, I, I wonder if he even understands about the intentions of the people in the poet of, in that poem and how they were against that. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm using air quotes for those not seeing, but that, that uncle Remus in the library and Tolson becomes really kind of invested in debunking or, analyzing Tate's response to this narrative. Um, and one of the things that it's clear is that, you know, this, this the anecdote that, that Tolson is telling is about a black person reading this, reading this poem in the library, where there's a kind of massive labor uprising going on around them. And so that there's this other kind of, there's this other kind of political dimension to this, to this aspect that uh, Tolson is kind of invoking that Tate and the new critical methods and, this, and the also kind of sociological methods of the mid-century kind of refused to see this context for uh, the possibility of black reading in this moment. Um, and Tolson here is drawing on uh, his relationship with the... Um, the, the sociologist Oliver Cox, who uh, taught at the same place at uh, Wiley College very briefly as Tolson, and they became kind of friends and corresponded over a while. Um, Oliver Cox, of course, the author of um, uh, uh, Race, Cast, and Class, which is a sort of important, um, you know, materialist critique of sociology and race thinking in this moment. And so, I think one of the things that 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 this you know, Tolson invites Tate into is to have a sort of public debate about the terms of new criticism. But the realities were are is that that debate ended up being largely one sided in part, because Tolson's essay, which he hoped to publish, which he never quite finished. There's about like 90 pages or so in the library of Congress of lots of fits and starts, um, never was published in the Sewanee review. Um, and so the, the conversation more or less ended with, uh, Tate's judgment of Tolson in the preface, and then this kind of swirling rumor uh, about, about whether, you know, Tolson intentionally revised his poem to kind of invoke that response from, from Tate, which, which Tolson seems to be the source of.
0: Yes, and so I'm curious if you could say more about, I mean, you characterize Tolson as sort of positioning himself um, between, between two worlds, um, and you say that he's not sort of after resolution, but about the kind of revolutionary potential that emerges from existing between those two worlds. And so I wonder if you can say more about how Tolson positions himself and about how that positioning, and this these are your words, um, reconfigures the literary, social, and political order. And you you touched on it a bit in that that answer you just gave, but I wonder if you could... I don't know, put a finer point on it, else, yeah,
1: I mean, I think so Tolson has in a later poem, which is again has a number of layers, but this poem Harlem Gallery, he has a character named Heidi Ho Heights, who's a kind of um a, po- a poem who or is is the figure of a poet who um, readers are invited to kind of compare to Tolson he is the author of a poem called E and OE which wins this award Tolson has uh, published a poem called E and OE which which won uh, the poetry magazine best best Hogan award and I think it was uh, in in the late 40s early 50s um, so there's there's an alignment there and that one of the kind of scenes is uh, this this poet uh you know experiencing this dialect the 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 quotation something like the dialectic of to be or not to be a negro poet and that this is kind of that that, in the way that that gets figured in the poem is you know does one embrace a kind of modernist style uh you know akin to the work of Eliot and others or does one embrace a sort of social realist style that these seem to be the options for um a black writer uh in the mid-20th century a black poet and I think Tolson wants to hold that dialectic kind of in check. He wants to suggest that, um, and he you know invokes this in his conversation with Tate, and also with you know his correspondence more broadly. But he, Tolson doesn't. Tolson's po- poetry is notoriously difficult. It's not easy, and even people at the time were were critical of this, including other black writers, and Tolson really did not appreciate the suggestion that he should uh, make his poem less difficult to write down to. Again, it's a a court of, you know, uh, suggesting that he should, suggesting that he should write down to the black masses. His poetry is uh, in Tolson's imagination written for a kind of uh, black future to come where suddenly the kind of difficulty of his poetry is not difficult. As soon as it is wrenched from a world that is so invested in, uh, the differentiation of the color line. And of course this is a a sort of invocation of Du Bois, uh, in in his thinking on the color line and this, uh, and my reading of the betweenness is, is very much informed by Naomi Chandler's kind of, uh, 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 you know, wonderful reading of of the beginning of Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk, focusing on you know the between. Uh, that that it that one of the things that Du Bois is thinking about is not necessarily choosing one world over the other, but rather about the kind of strange experience of of blackness as being precisely that between space, the kind of oper- operable, uh, you know operating between these worlds. And I think that one of the things that, that Tolson seems to embrace in his poetry is that precisely that betweenness and the bomb that he's seeking, this kind of like metaphorical, like, like um, explosion in letters is tied to a sort of geopolitical explosion, which is, you know, of course, can't ignore the kind of nuclear age context here. But I think is also really about for Tolson not just uh, resolving a black world into a white one or uh, exclusively kind of resolving the universalism that's associated with modernism into a sort of African-informed understanding, but rather it's about creating a new universalism altogether um, that is kind of separate and distinct from uh, the production of those two worlds. And so that's what his poetics are offering, uh, or at least they seek to offer. And in the sense that when that new world is created, the masses will understand, uh, you know, the density of reference, uh, that, that Tolson offers and the complexity that he provides so that it's not that the masses can't understand it. It's that the contexts prevent, uh, up the black masses from understanding his poetry at this particular moment. And that his, um, discourse with Tate seeks to kind of, um, lift up that dimension and why he is so, uh, why he, why he takes on such a degree of frustration um, with the critique that, uh, you know, Tolson should be modulating his style to, to write down, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I guess, you know, I do want to move to your third chapter, but I think I'm still confused about, about Tolson's about Tolson's lie I mean his myth whatever you want to call it I it just it just it, I have a hard time making sense of it given what you've laid out like why would he lie about revising his poem to suit Tate and how would that forward his goals um in the ways that you described his sort of literary critical goals um, it's just it's still for me like a confusing story
1: well I think I mean it, it is a confusing story. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's absolutely (laughs) confusing. And I think, I mean, the other thing I would say is that, I mean, to lie about it is to show that he is smarter than Tate, right, that he tricked Tate into endorsing um, a black poem, which is something that I think he saw rightly so that Tate otherwise had a resistance to. So on that simple level alone, I think the kind of intrigue that Tolson seeks to create is that, you know, in some ways, I mean, there's there's a trickster dimension to it, right? And I think that, I think that one of the things that I am interested in in my own reading of this kind of episode and this creation of this event that kind of ultimately failed to take off is to to suggest that Tolson is doing a little bit more than that. That he's that he that it's not just about um, pulling one on Alan Tate. That there was a sort of wider, um, both critical. And in some ways, like world historical kind of uh, event that Tolson wanted to put on. And perhaps that's a, a certain degree of like hubris that he thought that like this could this could could occur. And it's not surprising to see that given some of like Tolson's writing and his thinking about himself. But I also think and I mean, I don't mean to say that like Tolson actually thought he could like write a poem and it would like radically change the world. Right. But I think that he he saw a sort of historical significance to the things that he was doing. But I think that it, it, to me it, it highlights that one of the things that Tolson wanted to ultimately get was a kind of victory against Tate in whatever form that took. And perhaps as a sort of invitation uh, to begin to think about the kind of the, 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 the wider political dynamics of new critical interpretation and also their impression on um, uh their impression on the ways that we think about black writing. And I should add that, you know, I'm not alone in being uh, intrigued and confused, uh, at, you know, as you are. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of scholarly engagement with this particular narrative that, that's that gone on for, for, you know, a decade by, you know, people like Matt Hart and Kathy Lou Schultz and Michael Berube, you know, and, and others who are really, really tried to kind of parse their way through this. But I think one of the things that I hope to do and you know kind of with the archival turn towards this you know particular essay and other things is is to point out the ways that that Tolson rather than simply identifying that there is a kind of choice between modern poetry and uh you know a sort of social poetry for black writers that that Tolson's very much invested in trying to explode the existence of those categories in the first place, um, which I think alters the ways that we might think about the choice that black writers had, uh, towards what their poetics or what their literary style might be in the mid 20th century. And I think to me, that's where Tolson seeks to go, but, and I agree that, um, The artifact that we're most publicly left with makes that very difficult to see um, and has also kind of shaped our scholarly understanding of this of this episode
0: yeah i see okay yeah i mean what's just weird about it is he was trying to trip tate but it turned out to not be necessary so you know i just that's it just seems like it falls flat like and maybe tate still didn't take him seriously right he used his own language in the preface but Even so, You know what I mean? It just makes his point kind of moot. Like not only is Tate sort of not threatened by anything that Tolson might write, but it means nothing to him, whatever he thinks of the poetry, to lend his name to a preface. You know what I mean? It just seems like it makes everything that Tolson's doing impotent. And so that's why it's like the staging, the lie seems so weird to me because it's like, well, at the point where you're lying about it, I mean, what? Well, It just seems <laughs> so incoherent.
1: Right. Yeah, well, I think it, I mean, I think it highlights and um, Tolson's register for thinking about this, even in libretto, and I'll, I know we want to move on to other things, so I'll just say this one thing, but I think his register is like high, deeply like invested in the philosophy of history and in some ways, like the philosophy of philosophy, right? It's like a, a very particular discourse where Tolson wants to intervene in this conversation. And I think that it that emphasis de-emphasizes the kind of real political power that and, and real institutional power that the New Critics had, uh, both you know in their relationship with the American state and also with the university, and so I think that that like, and it's not to say that Tolson didn't understand that. I think he understood that also, you know. But I think I think it's to say that the approach that Tolson takes overemphasizes the kind of um, epistemological battleground. When I think that some of the other figures in the book that I describe, like Hughes, um, uh, a number of black communists like Doxy Wilkerson, Lorraine Hansberry, later Du Bois, see that an engagement with with the new criticism and the university is a... Uh, much more grounded materialist political battleground um, that certainly has epistemological um, ramifications and that needs to be addressed an approach too, but that there's also real coherent structural challenges that need to be made in order to address this um, formation. And so I think, Tolson is illustrative because he has perhaps in the book the most like kind of uh utopian imaginary of what of what a world beyond th- this new critical nexus would look like, but in that sense, that overplays that dimension of his thought um, and so I think that that might in some ways that's an, I think that's a that's an interesting way to clarify or to to you know approach that confusion that you're that you're that you're thinking about um and it's useful yeah, i mean I, makes, I appreciate okay. it cuz it's useful for me to to think about it and articulate it that way
0: yeah that makes sense i was you know it makes sense that he's just he's just in this little nerdy like discursive battle and everybody else is just like yeah but i have more power than you right <laughs> whatever right. It doesn't matter right yeah no okay that makes sense so um Let's turn to your third chapter, um, which centers on Langston Hughes and it's entitled Tactical Criticism. So you can just tell us, you know, what is tactical criticism um, and also why is Hughes so central to, to our understanding or your understanding of, of what's going on during this period?
1: Yeah, so the the chapter looks at Hughes' at Hughes's uh, executive session testimony before the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, uh, which is... Uh, you know, of which Senator Joseph McCarthy has a a crucial role. Hughes is invited to give testimony because his poetry has been published or has been purchased by the federal government and they want to know if he's a communist or not. And this executive uh, session testimony, which was private testimony, um, was sealed for 50 years, released in 2003. Um, And in it, Hughes is much more... um, fiery with his responses to the committee than he was in his public testimony, where um, I believe it's Arnold Rampersad who wrote that in the public testimony, Hughes was, I think his Rampersad's words were passive or even supine uh, in his kind of remarks there. But here, Hughes is much more willing to kind of take on the committee and also articulate a mode of reading, uh, a mode of reading poetry. And what what is tactical about it is that You know, I'm taking that from Michel Desarteau, who's kind of thinking about um, the kind of tactics of social movements versus the strategy of the state. In other words, these kind of, um, you know, I'm also thinking, too, of Robin Kelly's uh, use of that term uh, when he sort of thinks about the kind of tactical acts of uh, work stoppages or slowdowns or, um, you know, work stoppages or slowdowns or other small acts of resistance that might not otherwise seem uh, like, like planned acts of resistance, but are nevertheless acts of resistance. Right. And I think that one of the things that um, Hughes kind of seeks from the committee is, is a definition of one, what communism is and also what it means to read poetry. And I think what the chapter reveals is that Hughes throughout this period is really kind of challenging uh in a very coded way the um the relationship of new critical reading practices to the definition of what def- of what good literature is and the ways that good literature is kind of coded as a literature that embraces certain forms of white liberalism. And one of the reasons why I say coded is because this is a moment where Hughes is facing a lot of scrutiny for his relationship to communism and that Hughes is basically broke. He has having speaking appearances canceled and so has to be quite careful about his uh, his critique of uh any sort of aspects of what are seen to be liberal liberal, liberal uh, cultural practices and liberal uh, interpretive methods from the left. He has to be really careful about that or else he's going to be further ostracized. And so we see Hughes kind of stating through this coded discourse uh, of the ways that um, they can be other modes of interpretive practice of Black poetry that are also f- themselves forms of knowledge making that are tied to a wider um, Black tradition of, of, of critical practice and of, in, you know, of interpretive practice that he kind of links this up to. Uh, and so one of the ways the book thinks about this is through um, Black autobiography, which, which Hughes seems to invoke and kind of reproduce in his own testimony. Um, but it also looks at um, Anne Petrie's uh, novel the Narrows and kind of thinks about uh, the, the resemblance of uh, the protagonist of that of that novel um, having to kind of undergo a similar set of uh, anti-communist and uh, uh racist scrutiny, uh, to articulate a kind of mode, uh, of black life and black the interpretation of the black interpretation of black life that kind of gets obscured so that there's a, a sort of line that, that Hughes is, is kind of, um, implicitly connecting certain aspects of, of black interpretive practice in this moment through what he's attempting to do in this closed door hearing, uh, in Washington.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, just, just because of time, I do want to move to, to thinking about the Jefferson School. I mean, it's the longest chapter in your book. And, you know, I'll admit, I didn't know much about the Jefferson School. Um, and so that title is entitled, excuse me, that chapter is entitled Culture as a Powerful Weapon. And so can you tell us about the Jefferson School, its approach to the academic study of Black life, Black literature, um, and also its sort of impact?
1: Yeah, so the book, you know, ends and you know there's a there's an epilogue beyond it, but the book ends with this if one aspect of the argument of the book is that the institutionalization f- found, founded by the new critics or that the new critics are kind of motivating within the university for literary studies that black writers are actively challenging that one of the things that is crucial to that challenge is the the formation of alternatives, and the the Hughes and Tolson chapter offer um, discursive alternatives and methodological ones as well. But the Jefferson School chapter offers the fact that there you know is a literal material alternative that's tied um, to communism, and so the Jefferson School of Social Science uh, starts in 1944. It lasts until about the late. The, the late 50s, um, when it is forcibly closed, basically, by federal constant federal intervention. Uh, it's a school for, it's building on a sort of longer tradition of socialist and communist schools that are aimed at working people. Most of its students are um, working people. Most of its students are women. Uh, most of its students are, at least it overrepresented black students in New York than the population of New York, So, um, which was an explicit aim of the school. Um, one of the things that I argue in the book that's distinct from uh, some of the other work on uh, the Jefferson School, of which there is not a lot, but I would be remiss to mention the you know really pivotal work of Marvin Gettleman, um, of the late the late historian who uh, wrote you know two or three really crucial articles on kind of bringing this bringing this institution to the forefront, but that. One of the things I focus on is the study of black culture within these institutions, and particularly the role of uh, someone like Doxy A. Wilkerson, who um, had worked at Howard before leaving the Communist Party, became a columnist for The, columnist for the Daily Worker, um, and then uh, himself became uh, the director of curriculum. And when Wilkerson became the director of curriculum, while well, there were courses uh, being offered on black life and black culture at the Jefferson School, um, the amount of offerings really transformed with his with uh, him coming into place. You saw courses being taught by Du Bois. Uh, Later, Lorraine Hansberry taught a course there. Lorraine Hansberry was a student there. John Killens was a student there. You have um, courses on black literature. You have courses on racism in the medical profession. You have a wide variety of inquiry, uh, both into uh, contemporary sociological modes of thinking, um, but also various modes of, of, of political thinking. The Jefferson School itself kind of becomes the hub of this in New York, but I also draw on the fact that it seems to be adopting some of these methodological practices from the George Washington Carver School, which was located in Harlem, uh, of which it was affiliated. It took over the George Washington Carver School in the 40s uh, after that school had been closed, uh, again, due to some uh, kind of... Th- these weren't federal challenges, but these were challenges from a kind of liberal establishment to the role that a left-oriented school would would play in Harlem, um, but that was led by the... Um, the, the writer uh, Gwendolyn Bennett, who really was invested in establishing a pedagogical practice and a methodological practice that sought to put um, Black working people in direct conversation with Black cultural workers, that she was deeply invested in the fact that there need not be and should not be a separation between those, between those two groups of people, that there shouldn't uh, be the investment of you know a set of intellectuals who then speak for a you know a uh, um, a black community that they invent or that they are you know that they should be deeply connected to to that to that conversation, and so you know this uh, one of the things that I point out in the book is that you know Gwendolyn Bennett, um, the artist Elizabeth Catlett are deeply invested in creating uh, these kind of pedagogical and methodological practices that seek to uh, put into conversation. Uh, the work of everyday of everyday uh, black working people with black cultural production, and that that kind of informs an approach um, to, to to literary critical practice, but that also uh, informs an approach to the uh, what a. Um, institution for higher learning separated from the kind of forces of racial liberalism that we've spent, you know, a lot of the first part of this interview talking about what that might look like in some form or another. Um, and so that's, in, in part, that's one of the, the roles that the Jefferson school plays in the book is that it's not that this is just an imaginative otherwise that there, there actually was a kind of institution that was outside or beyond, um, the university and racial liberalism, as we've come to imagine it, that was doing some really critical work, uh, certainly for the study of literature that, that needs to be kind of put in conversation with our own literary his- histories, but also that that uh, uh, informs and engages um, a longer history of black studies that is, it is, that is not exclusively focused on um, the creation of uh, of a disciplinary practice that's inserted into the academy. You know, it it, it highlights a longer tradition of Black Studies um, that is uh, connected to uh, you know, black mass movements and and the black radical tradition, um, of which you know black studies in the sixties did, but that you know there's a long conversation about the ways that that um, has been incorporated and, and reconfigured once entering into the university system. So this is a kind of sort of prehistory, uh, you know, lesser known prehistory to that movement, and and, and gives us uh, material to think about uh, as it relates to it.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, well, just for my last question, I think it's 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 related to this vein of thinking. And I want to return back to something that you said early in the interview, you you called literary studies, at least sort of mid-century, uh, a kind of metonym for the university and for humanities thinking generally. And I wondered if you would say a bit about, especially as you're sort of getting into this prehistory of, of Black studies and thinking about these alternative modes and institutions that exist with Outside of the university space, I wonder if you would say that that's still the case. If, if if literary studies is is still a metonym for the university, and if it's not, I wonder what you would say to, you know, how we should understand our interpretive practices, um, especially since you know it's very topical in this moment, right? But if if, if literary, do you still think literary studies is, is has that kind of centrality? Um, and if it doesn't, what does that mean for the impact of the debates we, the ongoing debates we have about interpretation, um, et cetera, within the university. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think that this is like a hard question. Yeah, so I was- I, well, it's a hard question to answer because I feel like, I mean, I the, the to me, I mean, the answer actually isn't hard. I just feel like it's in some ways, it's like a hard truth to swallow, right? Which is, I think the answer is no, like it does not hold that position. But I think, and this is the hard part, is that the discipline itself as a structure, is really having a hard time grappling with the fact that it is not in that position any longer. And I think, you know, I I was recently having a version of, of this conversation with some people. And I think one of the things that's challenging is that, you know, literary studies about, you know, 30 years ago at this point, was the kind of premier place to think about difference and left politics within the academy. I mean, I'm sure some people will raise their hands and say, maybe not. But I think that there was a way that I think if you wanted to study certain forms of, um, if you wanted to enter into certain modes of what we now call minority studies discourse, that literary studies was the place to do it um, in in the, in the 90s, right? And I think that that's no longer the case. I think that there are a number of reasons for that. Um, but I think one of the things that's crucial is that th- that is no longer the case. And I think that literary studies is, goodness, is seeking to resolve its position, its imagined position within the academy as shaping humanity's discourse in a very strong way, which was of course, tied to a large number of majors of tied to its position within the curriculum towards establishing writing, which Trends within English departments themselves, separating writing departments from English, from English departments, things like that have kind of complicated this story, but that it is no longer the kind of the, the, the beating heart of, of humanity's discourse. What is? I'm not sure, quite frankly. I think that that's a very complicated question, but I think one of the things that the book asks us to reckon with, given that position, is... In order to have a better answer than the one I'm providing now, one of the things we have to reckon with as a discipline, if if I'm wanting to, if we, whereas if I'm identifying with the discipline right now, which I have, we could whatever. It's the last question. We'll have a long conversation about it maybe afterwards. But I think what I would say is is that what my book reveals is that. One path towards understanding the position of literary studies within the academy is to think about literary studies and its relationship to the formation of the academy in a historical sense and also in the present. I think the epilogue of the book invites us to think about how methodological um, changes within literary studies um, are not the only way to think about the discipline's history, and that i think thinking about the ways that the disciplines formation and its impact on say labor practices within the academy its impact on what the academy is imagined to be able to do what certain modes of thinking are available to do that that is crucial understanding that 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 trajectory of thought is crucial towards thinking about the position of literary studies now and my you know Maybe it's a polemic argument, but my sort of polemic is that that w- there's a lot of work to be done in, in terms of that, and so um, that understanding the the actual position of literary studies as it relates towards the wider aspect of the university, the wider aspect of humanities thinking more broadly, um, is an area where there's 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 a lot of inquiry to be done that can that can be informed by the kind of materialist understandings that. Uh, aspects of my book, you know, seek, seek to offer us.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, it was really great to talk to you today.
1: Yes, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much.